As the children are heading out, I'll invite you to get your Bibles and go ahead and open them to John chapter 13. And as you're finding John chapter 13, I want to remind you briefly of where we've been. Some of you weren't here last week. So last week, uh, we sort of asked the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus now in the in-between time, after he has ascended back into heaven, before he returns, when he's not here physically, when we can't follow him physically the way the first disciples did. You know, they left their boats and their families and they literally followed him on foot everywhere he went. We're still called to follow him. Being a disciple means being a follower of Jesus Christ. But I I don't want us to have a vague notion of what that means. I want us to have a very clear, concrete notion of what that means. So we were reading last week in John chapter 13, as Jesus was saying goodbye to his disciples, he told them, I'm leaving where I'm going. You cannot follow. And he left them with this new commandment to love one another. So last week we covered how essential loving one another is to following Jesus. And I don't want to rehash all of that this morning, but... Just very briefly, love is foundational for any other Christian endeavor. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Even if we have, if we speak with the tongues of angels, even if we have faith that moves a mountain, if we don't have love, it's just noise and it's worthless. Love is essential, it's foundational to any other endeavor we may ever try to do as a church. I can't preach well enough to overcome a deficit in love among us. We can't program church well enough to overcome a deficit of love among us. If we don't have love, we are nothing. Okay, loving, an an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. Oxymoron, not just a moron. Unloving Christian, that those do not go together. Love is so central to being a Christian that Jesus said in the passage we read last week, that's how people will know you're my disciples, the way you love one another. That's what identifies us as followers of Jesus, our love for one another. So we know how essential it is in following Jesus. The question I want to ask today as we prepare our hearts for communion is, How are we to love one another? Love means a variety of things to different people. Um, You know, I can say, I love you, Kathy Mahoney, as my sister in Christ. Or I can say, um, I love chocolate ice cream like I did last week. Are those the same thing? What does that even mean? Or when I look at my children or when I look at my wife and I say, I love you, is that the same as my love for my ice cream? Or is that different? What does it mean to love one another? Is it just a feeling that we feel for one another and a a feeling of affection? Or does it involve specific actions for one another? I want us to get clear on this. I want us to, to have some concrete edges to what we mean when we say that we love one another. So today we're going to focus, well, we're actually going to use this as a springboard, but we're going to focus on John 13 verse 34. Right after Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you. Those are the important words for this morning. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So if I had to sum up my sermon in a sentence, it would be this. Love one another the way Jesus loves you. Love one another the way Jesus loves you. Well, how does Jesus love you? How does Jesus love his disciples? What did he mean right then and there when he said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you? What would that have conjured up in his original disciples' mind? Well, I think they would have thought immediately back to that passage I read at the opening of the service when he washed their feet. These two passages are taking place at the same time when they're sitting around the supper table together. So Jesus stands up right before he says this new commandment and he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around himself. He's beginning to look like a servant at this point with a towel wrapped around him. And he kneels down at the feet of his disciples. He's got water in a basin that he poured. And he starts to wash their feet. Now there's stigma about feet today. When we have much better hygiene, we don't have to walk around in filthy streets where there's, you know, there's, their sewage system was just open, where animals had, had walked the same path with, with open sandals on. You know, we take much better care of our feet today than they did then. And even today, if I said, instead of communion, we're going to wash one another's feet. You guys will probably, probably be pretty weirded out by that. But this is what Jesus does. He bends down and he washes their feet. And this was a job only for you to do for yourself or for the very most lowly of servants to do. This wasn't something that was typically done that we, people would wash each other's feet. And when you were eating together, you, you pointed your feet away from everybody else. You didn't want your feet like pointing toward anyone because it was a sign of dishonor. So this was a very shocking act that Jesus did by washing his disciples' feet. So he went around, he used the towel that he'd wrapped around himself, he used the water, he scrubbed their feet. Okay, you, ha- you would have to scrub. You know, I don't know, some of you may not actually even physically wash your feet. You may just hope that the shower, the, the stuff that goes down will wa- do it. But this was stuff between the toes, you know, this was, it took work. And I would imagine that he did a good job. It probably took quite a few minutes. He washed their feet. And then he says in John chapter 13, starting at verse 13, I think that's what I put up there. If I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Okay, so this is, this example, this recommendation would have been still ringing in their ears. Their feet, as they heard Jesus say over in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. They're sitting there, their feet are clean, probably still air drying. He just said, this is the example. I've done this for you, you do this for one another. 
Now, some traditions still literally wash one another's feet. Some church traditions, they take that very literally. And you can see why they would. I mean, look at the language. You should do just as I have done to you. Now, it may be some relief to you that I don't actually think that that's what he meant, that we should literally wash one another's feet. I don't at all mean to disparage those traditions that do that. I think there can be great value to that. Um, I don't think that's, that was his point. I don't think what he was doing was about feet. I think it was about something bigger. I don't even think that he was saying that you should do throughout the generations of Jesus' followers, that his followers should do the modern day equivalent of washing each other's feet. For one thing, we really don't even have a modern day equivalent of what foot washing was back then. This wasn't ceremonial back then. This was a practical need that had to be done. Our feet aren't that dirty now. We don't have to wash our feet before dinner. You know, I've read some people say if there was a modern day equivalent, maybe it would be uh, washing one another's toilets. You know, it's not something, you know, we don't um, post on Facebook when we wash our toilets. It's sort of a private thing. And it's not something that, you know, when you have a guest come over, you want them to do for you. You want those to be clean before your guests arrive. Whenever we have company over, that if we can only get one thing done in preparation, Meredith makes sure that the toilets are clean. I'm talking a lot about Meredith today since she's not here. But see, that's still not exactly an equivalent. And I don't think that he's saying that we should have a program in which we go to one another's houses and clean each other's toilets. I just don't think this is about feet. I don't even think it's about doing dirty work for one another. I think it's about humility. I think when Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you, with that foot washing just echoing in their memories from just a few moments earlier, I think he means humble yourselves for one another. So let's look look at it again. If I then have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. But he interjects that he is their Lord and their teacher. He doesn't just want them to wash one another's feet. He wants them to remember that their Lord and their teacher washed their feet. Lord and teacher, these are exalted titles for someone. That's up here level. Foot washing is down here level, the very lowliest level. The point isn't the feet or the grime. The point is the demotion from Lord and teacher to servant. Paul says all this way better than I'm able to in Philippians chapter 2. And I'll invite you to flip over there. We're going to spend a lot of the rest of our time in Philippians chapter 2. But it is also going to be on the wall. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3, I think God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to elaborate on what Jesus meant when he said to love one another just as he has loved us, to wash one another's feet just as he did. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So let's say 
you're very inspired by last week's sermon and you really do want to love one another on a, on a deeper plane than you ever have before. And you decide, you know, I've let a lot of sermons go by without really applying it to my life, but this time I am going to respond. I believe God's word says that love is essential and foundational to everything. So I am going to set my face to love my brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. Well, what will you do? See, I think Philippians 2 gives us some insight into actually what that would look like, what that will look like as we do that. It would first not look like doing anything, but by stopping some of the things that we're already doing. It would look like doing nothing any longer from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is just, it's self-promotion. Conceit is not a word we use a whole lot, but I studied back into what the Greek word probably meant. Some of your translations may say vainglory. It's the idea of empty pride. It's the idea of thinking highly of ourselves, but for no real good reason. So we're to love one another by not promoting ourselves and not thinking too highly of ourselves. We're to shut down that part of our minds and our hearts that is responsible for self-promotion and self-inflation. Just power those departments down. Okay, and then he goes on. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If you have the NIV, I think it translates it better than yourselves. And that's just, I don't think that's a good translation because... It's not that that you were to look at one another as though we're qualitatively better, but that we're to give other people more substance in our view, to give them greater significance in our mindset than ourselves, to look at them as more substantive than ourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Turn down the self, turn up the other. Like if you had in your mind a volume knob on the thoughts about yourself and the thoughts about others, you would turn down the thoughts about self all the way to zero and turn up the thoughts about the other as high as you can. And then he goes on. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's the whole process of this humiliation, not in the negative sense of it, but the positive sense of the humbling yourselves. You step out of the self and get freed from it so that you can focus on the other. You stop looking only to your own interests so you can look to the interests of the other. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I was thinking through this, what some practical implications of this might be. And I made a little list. To be this loving for one another would mean being free from climbing any social ladder to lift others up instead. It would mean being free from controlling how other people see you 
so that you can actually see them. It would mean being free from the fear of hurt feelings to be vulnerable and to serve other people with no strings attached. Now that is an important one. I think one of the ways we can tell that selfish ambition has snuck into our attempts to love one another is when we do some form of service, some form of love, and we're not recognized by it or someone else gets the credit for it and our feelings get hurt. I think that shows that there was some selfish ambition in there. Because love isn't about the self. It's about the other. For us to love one another in this way means to be free from slavery to self-esteem so that we're able to esteem others. Free from the temptation to gossip to honor one another in the way we talk about them when they're not present. Free from holding grudges to forgive. Sometimes we get so burdened down by the grudges we hold against those who sinned against us that we're completely enslaved to it. But we don't have to live that way. We've been given a new commandment to shed that off. We can forgive. Free from the need to justify ourselves. To just be honest and transparent and say, I'm sorry. Free from self-consciousness to be aware of others. Free from the need to be right to yield to others. Free from the need to be heard to listen to others. Free from the need to be seen to be able to see others. Free from the need to grasp at anything. So that we can empty ourselves for everyone. This is the way Jesus loves us. That same passage in Philippians 2 continues on. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, this mind is already yours. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So my first and main point is that if we want to follow Jesus, we need to love one another. And if we want to love one another, we need to love one another the way Jesus loved us. But my secondary point, which actually may be even more important now that I think about it, we don't just need to love one another the way Jesus loved us, but we can love one another because Jesus loved us. Let me read to you 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. The reason we're able to love this way with such selflessness, with such reckless abandon, is because he first loved us that way. This is why real, true Christian love seems unconditional. It seems like unconditional love. It's actually not. It actually is conditional, 
is completely based on the love Jesus has had for us. If he didn't love us that way, if those conditions weren't true, we wouldn't be able to love this way. It seems unconditional because it has nothing to do with the condition of the people that we're loving. We're not to love one another because we are each so lovely. Often we're not lovely. Often we're hard to love. But our love for one another isn't dependent on how lovely we are. It's dependent on Jesus' love for us. We're about to take communion. And as we do, I just want you to hold these elements in your hand. And all I want you to think about is how much Jesus has loved you. How he gave himself for you. He's just lavished his love and grace upon us. I just want you to fill up with that so that you're so full with that that you're able to just pour it out into the lives of the people around you. And as we walk out of here, as you're with your families, as you maybe are going to lunch with your friends or whatever you're going to do, love one another just as Jesus has loved us. I'm going to pray And then I'll invite the deacons to come forward and we'll partake in communion together. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the shockingly humble way in which Jesus has loved us. Father, may we receive that love to a deeper degree than we ever have before. May those who are are among us who are really in no way free to love one another that humbly because they're too enslaved to themselves or by the power of Jesus Christ's blood and the cross and the gospel, would you break that slavery today? Would you free us from ourselves? May we receive your love afresh as we partake of this communion. And may we offer it freely to everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen.